morning. Uh, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Sam. Um, and my kind of job here, my role here, is that I'm the youth pastor, um, which is slightly ironic as I'm moving Nerf bullets off the lectern. Um, so we are, as Rob said, continuing today in our series on Joseph. Um, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to quickly recap um, kind of the story so far, because obviously it's the summer and some of you may not be here for any of it, some of you may have missed one or two um, or something like that. So basically we're going to recap Joseph very quickly um, and the story that we've been looking at so far. So what we've seen is we've been introduced to Joseph, who is one of 12 sons, okay, and he's the favorite son of Jacob, okay, and we see this throughout his life, and it's kind of building because of who his mum is, and so he gets given loads of different bits, but one of the bits he gets given is this multicolored coat um, that kind of signals and puts him aside as, as kind of the one who is favored by his dad. Okay, and obviously this leads to a little bit of tension within the family. In fact, his brothers hate him um, as a result, and this is made worse because he has these two dreams, one about these kind of sheaves of wheat bowing down, and another one about some sun, a sun and moon and stars bowing down to him. And he tells his brothers and his family that and says, what do you think that could mean? Um, that sort of thing, and with the obvious interpretation that that is going to be them bowing down to him. And so eventually they get to the point where they decide they're going to murder him. Okay, they say, Joseph coming in the distance of this side. They're going to murder him. They're going to kill him. Um, but in the last kind of moments, they change their minds and they sell him instead into slavery so they can make a bit of a profit from him. And so they, they rip his coat and they dip it in blood and they go up to their dad and they say, he's been torn apart by wild animals. So in the meantime, Joseph goes off to Egypt. And as he goes off to Egypt, he gets sold to this guy called Potiphar. Potiphar is the captain of the guard. Okay, So he's, he's fairly high up in Egyptian society. And Joseph, basically, God is with him him, and he gets elevated to the head over this whole guy's household, okay, so quite a prominent position for a slave to have, he's in charge of all of his stuff, all of his wealth, but basically what happens is, as he's in the house and is kind of doing his business, Potiphar's wife takes a liking to him, and basically keeps on trying to convince him to commit adultery with her, he keeps saying no to the point where he actually runs away, she gets a bit of his clothes, and then takes that bit of his clothes that she's ripped off, and she said, this guy attacked me, Potiphar goes off on a bit of a rage, as you would expect, and so he throws him into prison. So Joseph is, is in prison, okay, but God is still with him, and basically what happens is Joseph gets elevated to be in charge of all the prisoners, okay? He gets put in charge of the prisoners in the prison, and whilst he's in prison, there's these two people there, a cupbearer and a baker, who have both really annoyed Pharaoh, and they get put in prison, okay? And they both have dreams on the same night, and Joseph interprets both of those dreams correctly, okay? So the baker goes off and gets killed, and the cupbearer gets restored to his position, okay? And then two years go by, two years where Joseph is still in prison for something he didn't do, two years where he's still there, and Pharaoh then has two dreams, okay? Two dreams in one night, and basically what happens is the cupbearer remembers that Joseph is able to interpret dreams because no one else could interpret them. So Joseph gets brought out of prison, he interprets these dreams, he gives a plan for how these dreams can be kind of stopped or or how you can work within what God has said is going to happen and he gets elevated to the second in command over the whole of Egypt, okay? This huge, massive, stunning turn of events where Joseph is now in second in command of the whole of the Egyptian empire, okay? So that's what's happened so far. Now, 
The part of the story that we're going to look at today takes up about three chapters. So what, what, what I'm going to ask you to do is permit me a little bit more of storytelling, and then we're going to get into just one part of the story, and we're just going to read a specific bit. So if you do want to follow along, it is from chapters 42 um, to 45. We're not going to read all of that. Don't worry, we're just going to read a little bit of 45 if you want to be turning there now, and I'll just sum it up. Okay, so we've got to that point where, where Joseph is now second in command, and basically part of Pharaoh's dream is he has, it says, the dream said there's going to be seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. Okay, so we've had the seven years of plenty, the seven years of lots of food and prosperity have happened. In that time, Joseph has his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, um, who will come up later in the story. Okay, and then we're also now two years into the famine. Okay, so two years into the famine, the whole of Egypt is in famine and the whole of the surrounding areas are in famine, including Canaan, which is where Jacob and Joseph brothers live. Okay, so they're now in famine. And so Jacob hears that there's food in Egypt. So he says, I'm gonna, he says to his sons, go up to Egypt, buy us some food, okay? Because we're all starving. So you go buy some food, but you're not having Benjamin because Benjamin is my new favorite and he's staying here with me, okay? So 10 of them go up and who do they end up standing before but Joseph, who, is, who they sold into slavery, okay? They don't have a clue. They do not know this is Joseph. They do not recognize him at all. But Joseph recognizes them. And basically, he's a bit rough with them. And he accuses them of being spies. And basically, kind of to, in, under the pretense of finding out about his dad, about his brother Benjamin, trying to figure all this sort of out. And so he decides to test his brothers. So what he says is, he says, to prove to me that you're telling the truth, you can have the grain and you can go back to Canaan. But I'm going to keep one of you prisoner. And he's going to stay here with me. So he singles out Simeon. Okay, and so Simeon is staying in Egypt and he sends the brothers back. Okay, so the brothers go back to Egypt, talk to Jacob, and say, we need to take Benjamin back with us because if we don't, Simeon's in prison forever. And Jacob just goes, well, sorry, Simeon, but no, I love Benjamin more. And so, so basically, Simeon, <laughs> it's a poor bloke, is trapped, in, is trapped in Egypt and he's staying there as Benjamin is being held back by his father. And, and basically, that's how it goes for a little while up until the food runs out. So it's not compassion from any of the brothers and it's not compassion from Jacob that causes them to go back to Egypt. It's actually just the fact that they run out of the food. Okay, and you have this little bit of interaction where eventually Judah, who's one of the brothers, manages to convince Jacob to send Benjamin up with them. So they go back up to Egypt, all of the brothers together, including Benjamin, and basically Joseph receives them. And it all seems to be going a little bit better, which is, which is really interesting because over this period of time, there's been two separate occasions where they've commented how they think that the reason why kind of Joseph was treating them a bit rough and stuff like that was because God was judging them for selling their brother into slavery. Okay? So they think they're under God's judgment in this way, but then they return and it starts to go a little bit better up until Joseph kind of orchestrates this series of events where Benjamin gets accused of stealing and is going to have to stay behind as a slave. Because he stole, he's going to be a slave. Okay? And Judah kind of takes Joseph aside and begs and pleads with him to take Benjamin's place. Judah is the one who had the idea about selling Joseph into slavery. And you have this incredible turnaround where Judah is the one actually saying, no, I'll be a slave on behalf of Benjamin. Don't, don't. I can't bear to see what it will do to my dad. You, you, like, take me, please. Okay? So that's where we've got to in the story. So we're going to read from Genesis 45, 1 to 15. Um, as always, we want to make sure that what we're saying is from God's words um, and not kind of any ideas that we're cooking up. 
So starting in verse 1. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it. And the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in these lands these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth, and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and the lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me. You and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds and all that you have, there I will provide for you for there are yet five years of famine to come so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty." And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt, of all that you have seen. Hurry up and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. So what I want to see is to see this morning... And just as we start off digging into this passage, it's three things that this story teaches us about forgiveness. So the nature of forgiveness, the heart of forgiveness, and the results of forgiveness. Okay? These are the three things, three lessons I want us to learn as we start looking into this. And these, these three things are wrapped around in three things that Joseph says in those verses. Okay? So the first one that I want to look at is in verse 4 where Joseph says, come near to me, please. And they came near. And what I'd like to see this morning, that this is the most stunning picture of forgiveness. That actually, if we were to condense and boil down what forgiveness was in one sentence, in one phrase, it would be that, come near to me. That forgiveness in its truest form, the nature of forgiveness is come near to me. Joseph accepts them, he welcomes them in, he draws them in. He shows us that forgiveness isn't tolerating someone. Forgiveness is not just allowing them into your life, allowing them access, but maintaining some kind of moral high ground or level of superiority. He reaches down and he draws them in. He is the one initiating it. He is the one doing it, not from a place of superiority, but from a place of acceptance and love and welcome. Because Joseph was in a seat of absolute power. He really, really, really could have done anything that he wanted to them. And no one would have battered an eyelid. Not Pharaoh, not anyone else. He could have done absolutely anything. Torture and death were not only off the cards, they were viable options for Joseph at that moment. But he doesn't do any of that. He descends on them in this just mess of snot and tears and embraces, weeping over them and kissing them and embracing them which is not the picture. You notice that actually it takes them until the end of, of that kind of interaction where they actually talk with him. 
They don't even talk with him to that point because they're just the recipients, the surprised recipients of just this forgiveness and grace upon their lives. And the second thing that Joseph says is kind of the heart forgiveness. And what he says to his brothers, he says, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves. And Joseph here shows that the heart of forgiveness, that the heart of what forgiveness is, is lifting off guilt and shame from people. Taking away guilt and shame of people. That's the heart of what forgiveness is. And when you're living with unforgiveness in in your life, that that's the last thing that you want to do, isn't it? The last thing you want to do when you're living with unforgiveness is turn around to someone and say, don't feel guilty, don't feel ashamed, don't feel afraid. In fact, we want to say the opposite. You should know how much you have hurt me. You should know how much you have let me down. I want you to feel the pain that I have felt as a result of what you've done to me. Feel distressed, feel guilty, feel angry. The sad truth is that quite, for the most part, that actually, that actually isn't a response for the other person. The other person isn't wallowing in kind of guilt and shame. Often, actually, the other person isn't even, isn't even aware of what they have done to you. But you have this kind of bitterness in you. You just want them to be in this kind of emotional torment. So I may, I may consider forgiving you, but only if, only if I know that you know what that is and that you feel the weight of that. And Joseph doesn't do that. Joseph could have gone off on a tirade of how he'd been put in prison and falsely accused and all the things that have happened to him, and it was their fault. doesn't do any of that. What he does is he steps in and he says, don't be distressed. Don't be angry with yourselves. Don't feel guilty or ashamed or fearful. I forgive you. God was in this. At the heart of forgiveness is the lifting off of guilt and shame. And finally, the results of forgiveness Verse 11, Joseph says, I will provide for you. And here we see that the results of forgiveness are being a constant good, a positive force of action in the lives of other people. True forgiveness seeks the blessing and benefit of the person whom you're forgiving. It's what true forgiveness is. It's the results of it in your life. It can't be tolerating. It can't be just letting it go. But actually, true forgiveness results in something. It looks like something. And that something that it results in is seeking the good and benefit of that person. Now, that may, in all wisdom, and according to kind of making sure that you're safe and stuff, mean that practically, it doesn't work out like that. So practically, you are not shaking their hand, giving them a hug, making sure that they're they're being blessed and stuff. Practically, absolutely, there is wisdom in saying, for some situations, that is just not practical. But actually... As a result of what this shows us, the very least it should be is praying for them. The very least it should be is having a heart of desiring good for them. That if they come up in conversation, that it is a positive force, not a negative one. Or even not just ignoring it and just letting it go, not speaking. Actually, it should be a positive force of good in their lives. Joseph commits to providing for all his family, protecting them from famine, And in doing so, he plays his part in God's plan at fulfilling the promises he made to Abraham. As Joseph works out the results of forgiveness, he plays his part in God's plan. But what I would like us to see this morning is this is not all that Joseph teaches about forgiveness. And the reason for that is that as we've been going through this as a series, 
what we've seen is that Joseph is more than just an isolated story and an isolated incident in some kind of place randomly in the world, in the Middle East. That what we've seen is that Joseph is deliberately portrayed as this kind of messianic savior type figure. That when we look to Joseph, we see him as this something that's greater than who he actually is. That there's deliberate places where we're pointed towards this. And that he's pointing actually towards the true Messiah, the true Savior, who is to come, which is Jesus. Jesus is the better Joseph. And what we're going to see now is that this is true because he fulfills perfectly all that we have said that Joseph has done. So first of all, come near to me, please. And they came near. See, we too, like Joseph's brothers, would have stood before a seat of absolute power and authority. That we would have stood before someone who has authority. Not just the authority of Pharaoh, someone who has the authority of the Father, who himself is creator, sustainer, and Lord. We would have stood before Jesus. And we would have stood before him not just as an unrighteous people guilty of plotting the murder of our brother, we would have stood before him as image bearers turned idolaters. The way that Romans 1.23 puts it is this. People who would exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. That we would have stood before Jesus guilty of cosmic treason. That the charge before us is cosmic treason. Of taking the good gifts of the creator and spiting him with them. And as we do that, we also mar and taint the whole of creation as we go. Do you imagine how Joseph's brothers must have felt in that moment, standing before him as he reveals himself? The fear and the trembling and the sinking feeling. How much more would we in that day of standing before the holy God have felt? You know, we see in, in the Bible just the way that the holiness of, God is, holiness of God is worked out and where people catch glimpses of it, what their reactions are. So the prophet Isaiah, who's been set apart as God's messenger, in Isaiah 6, he sees just a vision of the throne room of God, and he just stands there and he goes, Woe is me, for I am lost. A holy guy, someone who God has singled out, and his only thing that he can cry when seeing the presence of God is, Woe is me, I'm lost, I'm done, I'm finished. That is the response before the holy God. That would have been our response. But Jesus is the better Joseph. And because of Jesus, that's not our story. It's not our future. And our response is not, woe is me for I am lost. It is glory to God for I am found in him. Because Jesus came and died on the cross, bearing all of our punishment, all of the righteous wrath of God against us. So now as we turn to God, we hear, come near to me. Come near to me. And we come near. Okay? We come near. We come near to the God who dwells in unapproachable light, to the holy God, the creator and sustainer and Lord of all creation, the Lord of the angel armies and eternal God, not as those still covered in our sin, but by those who have been completely forgiven, totally covered by the finished work of Jesus. That is how we come. He calls us, we come near, and we come near, completely forgiven and covered because of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16 says this, 
that we now approach the throne of grace with confidence. And Jesus has done it not just for one family at one point, in one time, in one area, but for all people from every tribe, from every tongue, from every nation, for all time. Jesus is the better Joseph. The second thing that Jesus fulfills is, do not be distressed or angry at yourselves. Joseph lifts the guilt, shame, and fear of his brothers in one moment of stunning forgiveness. One moment he lifts it from them. But Jesus is the better Joseph. He not only lifts the guilt, fear, and shame of the things that we've done in the past and their consequences on our lives, he lifts the guilt, fear, and shame for everything we are doing and ever will do. But Jesus' forgiveness goes beyond just lifting guilt and shame from the past, but is active in the present and in the future of our lives as well. The work of Jesus on the cross is finished. We are no longer stained by, this, by sin and guilt in our lives. And what we see is that there's this, there's this picture in this bit of the Bible called Zechariah 3. And if you've never looked at this, can I just encourage you to look at this because it is beautiful. Okay? And in this picture, in this vision, in Zechariah 3, you see this guy called Joshua, who is the high priest at the time. So all that means is that he's the one guy in the whole of the nation of Israel who's allowed to go before the presence of God. And that's only on one day. Okay? This guy is supposed to be, has to be, the holiest guy in the whole of Israel. Okay? So he's standing before God in this vision. And as he stands before God, he looks down at himself, and he's filthy. His clothes are filthy, and he just looks down at himself. And you can just imagine him just going, oh, what is this? And he's seeing all the sin and the guilt and the shame that he should be feeling. The most holy guy in the whole of Israel just looks down at himself, disgusted. And in this vision, you get Satan, who's at the right hand of God, not right hand of God, but he's he's near God, and he's pointing and he's accusing Joshua. And he's going, look at him. Look how filthy it is. That guy. Really? Come on. And literally, not literally, but basically, the text says, God says to Satan, shut up. And then you get this angel that comes before, and he says this to Joshua. Remove the filthy garments from him. And Joshua is told, behold, I've taken your iniquity, which just means sin. Behold, I've taken your sin away from you, and I'll clothe you with pure garments. That is us. That is a picture of us. That we don't look down at ourselves when we approach the throne of God and go, ugh, just look at this stuff in my life. This stuff, not that I've just done this in the past, but the stuff that I'm doing and the stuff that I know is wrong. And if God really knew me, then just he can't accept me with this going on. With the kind of, I'm just tainted by that. Or actually, what other people have done to me? I'm just, I'm just tainted. I just feel so guilty and ashamed about these things. that I just must look disgusting before him. And God says that's not how he sees you. The the weight of scripture, the whole Bible says that's not how he sees us. The Bible says that we are washed whiter than snow. That when Jesus looks at you, when God looks at you, when you stand before God, you've not got any of that stuff that makes you go, oh, you are completely clean. The only response you've got is, wow, I cannot believe that this is the way that I'm dressed. I cannot believe standing before a holy God that I am holy. 
that there's not one stain, there's nothing in the whole of me that could possibly separate me from God. There's no guilt, there's no shame, and there's certainly no fear because God and Jesus have dealt with it. Romans 8.1 puts it really simply. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And lastly, lastly, Jesus fulfills this statement. I will provide for you. See, Joseph, having completely forgiven his family, draws his family to himself, and he saves them from famine and death. And he brings them into a place of life and abundance as he provides for them. And in this we see Jesus truly, truly is the better Joseph. Jesus has drawn us out of a place, our place, of spiritual famine, our place of spiritual death, and has brought us to a place of abundance and life in his presence and provision. See, Jesus promised to bring life and life in all its fullness. Jesus brings freedom from sin, peace with God, healing to our hearts, souls, and bodies. He's restored us to the place we were meant to be. Through Jesus, we've been adopted into the family of God, sharing in the love of the eternal Father and the eternal Son and the eternal Spirit. When God says he loves you, it's not a separate love to the love that he has for himself. It's not a separate love that he has for his son. When God says that he loves you, the love that he has for you is that of the love that he has for his son. Is that of the love that he has been having from before time began until there's no time. It's the same love for you because you've been adopted into the family of God. And one day when Jesus returns and makes all things new, we will share in his inheritance, the new creation, ruling and reigning with him. See, Jesus, Jesus is the better Joseph. Jesus, Jesus has provided for his people that he has forgiven. And it's not because of anything that we've done, but it's because of what he's already done. And this is where the, the link between Joseph and Jesus splits off. Because see, Joseph tested his brothers. Joseph waited to see if they had changed before he stepped in, drew them in, and forgave them. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus does the opposite of that. Jesus doesn't wait for us to get to a level before he forgives us, before we can come to him, before we're right with him, or truly walking with him, or a proper Christian. Jesus doesn't do that. Because the reality that we find ourselves in is that if that was a reality, we would never get there. We would never reach the line. We would never be perfect. We'd never be holy. Even if God lowered his standards dramatically, we still couldn't reach it. And one of the easiest ways of describing this is there's this story in in, in the Gospels of this woman who's caught in adultery. And the people that are bringing this woman before Jesus, these guys are the guys who were supposed to know their Bibles in and out. They were the leaders of the synagogues. They were the guys in the temple who knew what they were doing. They were supposed to be the guys who knew God the most, okay? If you were to take kind of all good works and add it up, these guys were the guys that should have been able to go, I'm saved. I'm safe. I'm, you know, this is me. And they bring this woman before Jesus. And they start accusing her and bringing all these things against her. And Jesus just looks up and he goes, he who is without sin, cast the first stone. Go ahead. Do it. And from with the old, starting of the oldest all the way down to the youngest, every single one of them walks away. Every single one of them walks away. And so he looks up and he sees this woman. And he goes, does no one condemn you? She goes, no. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go away and sin no more. 
See, in that picture, we see the most righteous people of Israel, the people that should, and in fact, probably in other conversation points, would have said that they were fine. You know, the Apostle Paul, when he writes in Philippians, he says, with regards to the the law, he says that he followed the law blamelessly. Okay, he did it. Every single bit that the law stated, he did it. And yet he said that he was sinful. He said that he did the things that he didn't want to do. That we could not stand before God and work our way to him. But Jesus is the better Joseph. We don't have to. That's not the forgiveness that we have. The forgiveness that we have is what Jesus has already done because Romans 5 tells us that while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. While we were still in sin, while we were enemies with God, he died for us. So we come freely to God totally forgiven, not by anything that we've done by ourselves. Jesus' forgiveness is so different from that of Joseph's in this point. He doesn't test us or get us to bring us to a point. He certainly doesn't do that when we've been saved. He certainly doesn't say, right, now that you're saved, here, here's the standard, it's gone completely up and you've got to do it on your own. He says, no, no, I will send my spirit to be with you and I will make you like me as you continue to follow me. But that is the forgiveness that we have over our lives. Jesus is the better Joseph. And there's just three areas that I feel like the word of God is demanding a response from us today, okay? Three places that I feel like God is just wanting to hit home to us. And the first is that if what God has done for you in Jesus has lost some of its significance, it's lost some of the beauty, the awe, the wonder that it should have in your heart. The what I feel like God is saying is that he wants to restore that to you this morning. And in fact, as I was preparing this week, I felt like God was saying prophetically that he doesn't just want to encourage this morning, he wants to renew people this morning. The second thing is, if you're here this morning and you've, you've never asked for Jesus' forgiveness, you never asked Jesus to come into your life and your heart, then what you need to know this morning is the invitation of Jesus is, come near to me. Please, come near to me. And as you come near, everything you've ever done, everything you ever will do that is against God is forgiven in one moment, in an instant. Come near to him this morning. Receive his forgiveness. Receive his love. And the third and final thing is, the thing that I think is probably hardest for most of us, and it's that if you're struggling with forgiveness this morning, Now, that may be that you're struggling to believe that God is a God who's forgiven everything in your past, everything in your present, um, even things that you're scared that you might do in your future. If you're struggling to believe that this morning, or if you're struggling to forgive other people, I don't know who you are for the most part. I don't know what you've done. But I do know who Jesus is, and I do know what he has done. And he has said this morning, it is finished. So that kind of has two responses. One, that either means that actually we need to come to God and just allow him to dictate and say to us who we are. The creator of the world, the savior of our lives, gets to tell us who we are. And if he says we're forgiven, then we are forgiven. We don't, get to, we're not, we don't have the authority to decide that that's not true. Truth is true whether you believe it or not. Okay? And the other thing is that if you are you know you're harboring unforgiveness in your heart because of something that someone has done to you, maybe people have done to you, then what you need to hear this morning is unless that person is guilty of cosmic treason, 
They don't have, <laughs> you don't have the right to stand before them and say, no, you, what you've done isn't covered by that. Unless they've, you know, you're the creator and they've rebelled against you, you don't have the right to stand before them and say, no, no, you're not worthy of forgiveness, but I am. Because we've been forgiven much, we forgive much. And to not forgive makes a mockery of the forgiveness that we've received. And if that sounds harsh this morning, I love you, but it's true. That if you're not forgiving people in your heart, not just tolerating them, not just having some kind of moral superiority over them, if you're truly not forgiving someone in their heart, truly forgiving them, drawing them in, releasing them from guilt and shame, wanting the best for their lives, if you're not doing that this morning, then please come and be prayed for and be set free from that. You have been forgiven everything. You are covered. But because of that, then you must forgive. You must forgive. If I had more time, I'd go into how, what Jesus says about that, but I don't. So we'll end there. Let me just pray. Can I just invite the band back up? We're going to have people to, to my right, to your left, that are just going to be available to pray. Can I encourage you this morning? Let the word of God do something in your heart and your life this morning. Allow the word of God to speak to you and come and receive prayer. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that we are forgiven in Jesus. Lord, the depth of that, the weight of that, the results of that, are, Lord, minds boggling. Lord, we choose, we choose to believe who you have said we are. We choose to believe who, what you have said you have done, and we choose to believe what that means for our lives. Lord, that we are forgiven in you when we come and put our faith and trust in you, totally for all time. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the better, Joseph. Lord, help us to live lives that, that not only rest in what you have done, but display what you have done as we forgive others in our lives. And we ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. You have been listening to a sermon from Christchurch Hailsham. For more information or to contact us, visit ChristchurchHailsham.org.